make this long story short, next morning I'm waking up and the alarm goes off at 5.30 a.m. and I couldn't move, couldn't get out of bed. I was trying to move my whatever leg, my hip, my arm, nothing, nothing moved. I was in excruciating pain and eventually some officer, somebody came in and said, get out of bed you lazy so-and-so. I said, I can't. Yeah, we've heard this before, get out of bed, it's time to go. I said, no, I'm hurting. And they called for an ambulance, took me to the hospital, MRIs, and I had a stress fracture in my lower back and a two bulging disc. So I'm 19 years old and I'm in the hospital for six weeks. <clears throat> they hung me up on my feet, sort of thing, elevated my feet to get some traction. I thought my golfing life was over right there and then. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. Today Richard's guest is professional golfer Bernard Langer, sharing his story and journey to faith in Christ. And now our guest, Bernard Langer. You probably wonder why I'm here this morning, why well, I get paid so much money, the appearance fee is so high, that's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here to give glory to God. I don't get paid, uh, just for those of you who might think, why is he here? Um, we're playing the tournament at uh, Greystone and uh, I love to take opportunities when I'm in different cities to give my testimony and share my story. So I'm going to talk a little bit about golf, a little bit about my life, and uh, a little bit about my faith. How many of you are golfers? All right, that's good. So you're not going to be too bored if I talk about golf stories. So I'm, I'm going to start off with one of my favorite stories. It was Seve Ballesteros, we all know Seve and Tony Johnson, and they're playing in Scotland on a Lynx course, and Seve was like 6'2", big strong Spaniard, hit it a mile. Tony was like 5'7", 150 pounds. He was always outdriven 30, 40 yards by Seve. So they finally come to the 14th hole. It's a typical Lynx hole. You know, you hit over a sand dune, you have no idea where the fairway is. There's a little white pole up there and uh, you try and hit over that pole and, and hope the ball ends up in the fairway. And uh, they both hit good tee shots. Tony walks up first over the hill, sees one ball 25 yards shorter than the other, immediately goes to the shorter one and uh, sees that his ball or the ball is in a big divot uh, right up against it. So he's thinking, wow, what am I going to do with this? And then he realizes that as he takes his stance, there's a sprinkler head about a foot and a half this way and there's another one a foot that way but he can't take a stance like this right so he says Sevi Sevi come over here and Sevi goes what what do you need Tony just just come here have a look at this so Tony says I'm gonna play a hook out of here so I'm, I'm gonna can I take this off sorry I'm gonna aim 30 yards over there the, the hole is this way and I'm gonna close my club face and I'm gonna hook this thing onto the green with my eight iron or something. And Savvy says, no, no, Tony, you can't play a hook out of there. It's impossible. This lie is horrible. He goes, okay, well, what if I play a slice? I'm gonna aim 20 yards this way and I'm gonna stand on this sprinkler head and I get relief and I open the club face and I play a slice out of here and I get a free drop because I'm standing on the sprinkler head. And uh, so he says, no, Tony, I, I can't get you a free drop out of here. The, there's no way you can slice this ball. And 
Tony looks at Savvy and says, it's okay, Savvy, it's your ball. <laughs> Would you do that to one of the greatest players in the world? <laughs> Another quick story. Uh, 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 Tom Lehman is playing in the US Open, I think it was up in New York somewhere, and he, he's on the 11th hole and there's a dog leg right, so he, he tries to cut off a little bit of yardage and there was a bunker right at the dog leg, so he fades it and it's just kind of going over the bunker, but he's not sure is it in the bunker, did it carry, so he gets there and uh, doesn't see his ball, it's not in the bunker, it's not in the fairway, and there was right over the bunkers a little bit of a hill and very long grass, typical US Open. And he goes and looks and says, where's my ball? And the people are just watching their spectators say, back there. And he goes, well, it's like if this is the bunker, it's kind of right a foot over the bunker or two on a big downslope. And he goes, well, how did it stop there? And it's kind of buried. And one guy says, well, you hit me on the shoulder and it bounced backwards and up the hill and it's now buried under the grass, which was lying this way and the ball went in that way. And Tom said, oh, that's just what I needed. You know, so he looks at his lie and he's got one leg up, you know, trying to hack this out about 20 yards. And, and as he's making his practice swings off this downhill lie and the ball's buried, the people are all moving back from the, from the side, you know, where they're watching. And he goes, you don't have to move back, I'm just hitting it 20 yards if, if I can. So they came a little closer again, and he's doing one more practice swing. He's taking a mighty swing at this ball, trying to get it out of there. He shanks it, and he hits the same guy on the knee. <laughs> so, what's that like? Being hit twice by Tom, Tom Lehman in back-to-back. Anyways, um, it's an honor and pleasure for me to be here. Thank you all for getting up early and, and you know, taking time out uh, to uh, join us here this morning. I, I grew up in a small Bavarian village uh, near Munich, Germany. Actually, when my mother had my older brother and my older sister, the doctor said, you should never get pregnant again because uh, it, it might kill you and the baby. Well, she got pregnant again, and now the doctor says, you're gonna have to abort this child uh, because you're not gonna make it. And uh, she's, she prayed over it, and my father obviously, and she decided, no, I, I'm not gonna abort this child. So she uh, had me, I was the child, and she made it through and I made it through, uh, but it was high risk. So I was about a year old and I had fever cramps and I rolled up into a ball kind of thing and the doctor says, well, this kid's not going to make it. We have no medication. I was at 105 plus fever. There's nothing we can do. It's in God's hands. I had that about five or six times and obviously I made it through that too. Uh, then I grew up, you know, pretty much as a normal kid, uh, enjoyed um, everything from mainly soccer to any sport. I was fast, I was, had, had great hand-eye coordination, I was gifted, so I just enjoyed sports and outdoors and loved participating in anything and everything. And uh, so my father was a bricklayer, my mother was a housewife, uh, very poor financially. Uh, this was after World War II when everything was destroyed 
in Germany and in all that to be rebuilt. Uh, so it was difficult times financially, but you know, we had enough food, that was about it. Uh, I didn't get many new clothes. I had to wear all the hand-me-downs from my older brother, whether it was shirts or shoes or whatever it was. It was always his stuff. I never got anything new, which wasn't a problem to me. That's just how life was at the time. So I uh, went to a local school, obviously, in our little village of about 800 people. I went to church every morning, starting when I was about four or whatever, even sooner maybe, and certainly when I joined school at age six. We always had a service before school and then went to school, and school was usually over around 1 p.m., and then we had time to do homework or, or you know, play with other kids. So uh, what I was trying to say is I was growing up in a very religious home, and, and I intentionally say religious because many of our, us are religious, but we're missing the point, and I'll get to that later. I was following a lot of rules and regulations. I was altar boy for nine years. I went to church every day of my first, whatever it was, 15 years of my life, pretty much. I heard a lot of sermons. And I was basically taught or told that I have to be a good person to earn my way to heaven. I have to try and keep the commandments, which are impossible to keep, I think. But I was told to try and keep them. And if I'm good or better than most, I probably make it to heaven. And so that's how I lived my life when I was younger. Um, I was nine years old and my older brother decided to caddy. He was five years older, and he came home with some Deutschmarks in his pocket. And I thought, man, that's the coolest thing. He's, he's like 14 years old or something, and he's earning money. I want to earn some money. So I begged him to take me to the local golf course, which was five miles away, and finally he gave in. At first he said, no, you're too little, too small. You can't do this yet. But we didn't carry bags. We pushed and pulled trolleys which was possible by a nine or 10 year old. And so he finally took me, uh, jumped on my bicycle, we rode five miles. And uh, the very first bag I ever got was the club champion, handicapped two, best player in the club. And uh, it was fun watching him hit the ball, you know, really far and pretty precise. And this guy took a liking to this little nine year old blonde fellow and he said, from now on, Whenever I come to play golf, you're gonna be my regular caddy. Nobody's gonna caddy for me but you. And it's a lot more fun caddying for a nearly scratch player than for handicap 30 or 36, <laughs> where, you, where you go like this constantly. So that was a good experience right away, and, and I loved earning money. So I often say I fell uh, in love with a game of golf because of money. But uh, that didn't last long. I fell in love with the game of golf because of golf. It's a, it's a great sport. So we were allowed to play as caddies and practice <clears throat> when there were no members to attend to. And that gave me the opportunity just about every day after school to go up to the golf course, earn a little bit of money, and you know, chip and putt, hit some balls, play a few holes. In the summer, we would pitch our tents and we'd be up there, you know, as soon as the sun got up at five in the morning or something, 
we would have played 36 holes before the first member showed up kind of thing, if, if possible. So those, those were good times and that's how I got into the game of golf. Uh, and, you know, when I went to school, m many of my other friends said, what are you doing on the golf course? What's, what's golf anyways? Why don't you play soccer with us or ping pong or, you know, something like that, which, which I did a little bit, but I tended more and more to, to go to the golf course. And a lot of my friends couldn't understand it. And uh, many people in Germany at the time had no idea what, what golf was. Uh, they thought it was putt-putt, you know, miniature golf. So anyways, I finished uh, basic schooling, which was nine years. Uh, there's one funny story. When I was about in sixth grade, so I was 12, my parents decided to give me the opportunity, <clears throat> even though it was financially difficult for them, to send me to the next level of school, a much higher school where I could then, if I make it through there, go to college. Well, going to that school, they had a three-month trial period for every uh, child that went there. For me, it meant to get up at 6 a.m., catch a bus, take a train, and walk a little bit. And I got there at 8 a.m., went to school till 4, got home at 5, or 5, <coughs> excuse me, 5.30, had homework for about three or four hours, and that was my day, and do it all over again. And that was radically different from me going to school to one, going to the golf course and having fun outside. I'm telling you this because uh, I felt that three months period in, in two subjects, uh, in English, my grades were not good enough in English. And now I look back at my life and all I do is speak English because I'm, <laughs> I'm married to a girl from Louisiana. Our, we have four kids. We raised them in America, in Florida, where we live. Uh, we also have four grandkids, and nobody speaks German on tour. There's no other German. Well, now I have Alex Checker. We speak a little bit of German. So my whole life is about speaking English, and we speak English at home. Uh, so that's interesting. Anyways, I guess it was meant to be. So I was kicked out of that school uh, after three months. So I went back to the local school and got back to the golf course, which suited me great. So I finished my nine years uh, basic schooling and I was 15 years old and had to decide what do I do with my life. I had to earn some money. I couldn't live out of you know pocket of my parents any longer. So we decided, my parents and I, would go to the Institute of Job Placement. We went to the Institute of Job Placement. There was a gentleman behind the desk and he said, well, young man, what are you going to do with your life? What are your dreams? What kind of work do you want to do? I said, well, sir, I, I want to become a golf professional. And he wrinkles his face, goes, what? I said, a golf professional. Never heard of that before. <laughs> so he leaves the room for a minute, excuses himself, comes back, and he says, you know, I looked up, tried to find any kind of documents on this golf professional job, and, and there is none. It's not a recognized profession in Germany. And I would highly recommend for you to learn something decent. And here I am, 15 years old, my parents next to me. I'm gone. this is my end, my end of career, my end of life sort of thing. Um, but we're talking now 1972, you know, only 50 years ago. And uh, I was stubborn enough, I guess. I convinced my parents that this is what I wanted to do. Uh, I got a job offer in Munich, which was an hour and a half away. 
uh, by car. So we drove there, got interviewed. The guy in charge said, yep, yeah, would love to have him as, as our assistant pro. And I'll take care of him. I'll let him go to church on Sunday mornings. And, uh, you know, I'll be his kind of father figure. I teach him all the ropes. And my parents were okay with that. And I rented a, a one-room thing, which was about a few square feet, basically just a bed and a sink in a farmhouse. And that's where I lived the next three years, uh, away from home, 15 years old. Didn't see my parents very often because I didn't have a car. Uh, no way to get home, and I had to work six days a week anyways. So it was a very big change of life, and very young still, but, but I still enjoyed it, because I just, this was my dream, my dream job in a way. So at age 17, I won the national, German National Clothes Championship for German amateurs, German pros, and a uh, businessman from Cologne saw me win the playoff, and he said, well, young man, I was 17 years old. He says, if you ever want to make a living on tour, if you're thinking of joining the European tour or any tour, let me know, I might help you financially. So I said, yeah, I would love to do that, but I have one more year to do as an apprentice. Uh, I had to finish my three years to get my diploma as a head professional. And uh, after that, I would love to do it. So I finished my year, got my diploma. I was 18, uh, called this guy from Cologne. He gave me a little bit of money to cover sort of half of my expenses. And off I went uh, onto the European tour in 1976. Uh, Played pretty decent, developed the yips right away, which didn't help, because if you can't putt, <laughs> you're not gonna do very well. But uh, I, I did finish fifth in my third tournament in the Madrid Open, and that kind of proved to me personally that I belong out here. I'm, I was a good ball striker. If I can just figure out my putting and my chipping and get a little better in the short game, I figured I could be one of the best on this tour. And 1977, so I finished 56 in the money list, was uh, exempt for the next year, and then I got drafted into the Air Force. Every German had to do 18 months, I think, mandatory service. So I joined up, um, and it was some of the worst time in my life, I have to admit, the first three months, uh, just because of the, how do I say this? Um, can't think of the word now, but it'll, it'll come to me. So the first three months were very difficult. Like Friday afternoon, evening, they would uh, inspect your bed, your locker, your shoes, your rifle. And if everything was well taken care of, you got to go home on the weekend. So I wanted to go home. I was only an hour away from home and I was kind of miserable in, uh, you know, what we're doing there for three months. Anyways, I had my shoes polished. I could see my own face reflecting off in my rifle. I took it apart, I, it was shiny. Everything was perfect. So the guy comes at 5 p.m., show me your shoes. And I'm standing there showing him my shoes. Show me your rifle. And then he goes like, spits on it. He goes, what's this? I go, I know if I say, well, you just spit on it, I'm in the doghouse. If I, if I say it's dirty, I'm in the doghouse. It's dirty, I'll clean it right up. So he says, you're staying the weekend. 
And so I stayed the weekend. You know, everybody else got to go home. I had to stay the weekend. And one day we went out on uh, uh, <clears throat> the discipline was the, the word I was looking for. They were, they were trying to teach, teach us discipline. I had more than enough discipline just being a golfer and having my dream of becoming a successful golfer. I had a lot of discipline, but this kind of discipline they taught me was terrible. I saw it and I, I didn't like it. Anyways, one morning we went out, 30 pound backpack, rifle, marching on frozen ground in January. And every two minutes the guy in charge said, uh, low airplane attack, I guess it means a low air enemy airplane is flying at you, shooting machine gun bullets at you. We were told to throw ourselves on the ground, flat on the stomach with a 30 pound backpack and a rifle in your hand. So we did this hundreds of times that day, marching out, outside, frozen ground. So at the beginning, I didn't throw myself on the stomach because I felt that wasn't very safe with a 30-pound backpack hitting you every time. So I threw myself on the side and rolled on my stomach pretty quick and much safer because you don't hurt yourself. Um, anyways, he saw me one time, the guy in charge, says, what's your name? I said, Langer. Show us 20 how to do it correctly. Flat on your stomach. So I did 20 extra. Make this long story short, next morning I'm waking up and the alarm goes off at 5.30 a.m. and I couldn't move, couldn't get out of bed. I was trying to move my whatever leg, my hip, my arm, nothing, nothing moved. I was in excruciating pain and uh, the, everybody else got up, got dressed, and I said, I can't move. And eventually some officer, somebody came in and said, get out of bed, you lazy so-and-so. I said, I can't. Yeah, we've heard this before. Get out of bed. It's time to go. I said, no, I'm hurting. So eventually he got the message, and they called for an ambulance, took me to the hospital, took x-rays, MRIs, and I had a stress fracture in my lower back and a two-bulging disc. So I'm 19 years old, and I'm in the hospital for six weeks. <clears throat> they hung me up on my feet, sort of thing, elevated my feet to get some traction. I thought my golfing life was over right there and then. But it got better after a while, and then I got dismissed from the first three months of boot camp and to uh, uh, a sports company, they called it, where they drew together the best sports people. I was already the best golfer uh, in the country at that stage. So I was there with all sorts of other athletes, long distance runners and, and all sorts of stuff. And, and that was, you know, quite reasonable and very enjoyable. From that point on, I could practice and play golf again. And uh, to this point, I've had a lot of back problems, a lot of neck problems. Um, had to withdraw from several events. I was told in 1986, after seeing specialists, uh, you have to have a, a back operation sooner or later. Your back is so screwed up, basically. There's no way around it. And I said, well, if there's any alternative, I'm not going to have a back operation right now. I was trying to wait and wait till they got better and better at it. Well, I still haven't had a back operation, and I'm 65 years old. so. Uh, thank you God for whatever protecting me in that regard, but there's been a lot of issues because of that incident, I think, in the Air Force. So let's move on. Uh, 
yeah, I finished that and then joined the European tour and, you know, got fairly successful. Um, one quick story, I was at Sunningdale um, on the putting green in London playing a big tournament. We only had three tournaments to go. This was 1980. And uh, putting on the putting green there with my sort of bullseye, it had a little flange to it, putting, and Sebi Ballesteros comes over and he was already the best player in Europe. He, he won the Masters, he won the British Open. He was one of the greatest putters I'd ever seen. And he comes over and says, what are you putting with, Bernhard? And I hand him my putter and says, hit a couple. And he hits three putts and hands it back to me and walks away. I'm going, Savvy, hold on a second. Well, what do you think about my putter? I wanted to know, you know, from one of the greatest putters. And he goes, you really want to know? I said, yeah, I want to know. He goes, well, I think it's too light and it doesn't have enough loft. And then he starts walking away and I'm going, wow. So, I immediately go in the pro shop looking for something heavier with more loft. Couldn't find anything I liked till uh, I asked the guy, is there any other clubs, any other putters you, you have? And he goes, well, there's over there in that corner, there's an old bag. Uh, there's some very old clubs in there. You maybe find some there. So I went over there. Sure enough, there was a bullseye with a flange, a little heavier, a little more loft. I said, can I try this on the putting green? He goes, yeah, just take it. So I go out there, hit a few putts, and felt great. It was heavier, beautiful roll. I went back in, I said, I'd like to buy that putter. How much is it? He goes, oh, a 90-year-old lady gave up the game. She told us to get rid of these clubs, so you can have it for five pounds. So five English pounds. I said, here's five pounds, bought the putter. I finished third that week, second the next week, and I won my first European Tour event the following week. So, Sammy, thank you very much. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm enjoying my life on tour. I still believe in God. Uh, I go to church every once in a while uh, because it's difficult on tour. Usually we work Sundays, or we, we'd like to work. Uh, if we don't, we miss the cut. We're not doing very well. And uh, it's tough to go to other churches when you travel the world and you don't know what to expect and what kind of uh, service or sermon they're going to have. So I came over here in 1983. I got invited to a couple of tournaments uh, because I won the money list in 1981 in Europe. And uh, that kind of got the attention of some of the promoters over here. And I was managed by IMG, McCormick International Management Group. So I played a few in Florida. I was in the Masters in 82 as well. Uh, there was one quick story. In 81, I climbed a tree in uh, Fulford, York, uh, and uh, hit the ball out of a tree. I pulled a nine iron for my second shot. There was a big oak tree about 20 feet next to the green. And the, tree got st uh, the ball got stuck up on this tree pretty high, probably 20 feet up there, but I could see it. It was sitting on a little indentation on a big branch. There was the trunk and it was sitting right there about a foot and a half away from the trunk. So my options were go back where I hit it, drop it with a penalty shot or go up there and climb up the tree and hit it. So I figured I can probably get up there and uh, with the help of a few people pushing me up, I made it up there and hit the ball from the tree onto the green. and. Uh, almost made the putt. So when people ask me, what club did you use up there? I say, a tree iron. Uh, 
So anyways, I came over to, to Florida, uh, played a few events. One was the Johnny Gleason in very classic in Fort Lauderdale. And there I met my wife. She was walking around with her sister who was married to a golf pro at the time and we ran into each other, went out to dinner, a bunch of us, about eight of us, and, and it just was love at first sight, basically. And we started dating first long distance because I was still playing the European tour. She was a flight attendant for Eastern Airlines and uh, this long distance stuff didn't work very well, especially in those days when you don't have cell phones. And, uh, so we decided to take it, either drop the relationship or take it more serious and we went the serious way and nine months later we were married. And I was envisioning myself living in Munich where I grew up and playing the European tour still. But uh, she had a hard time not speaking German very well, obviously, and uh, uh, she was used to America and she probably had these visions of raising kids. And uh, how does she do that in Germany when she doesn't speak the language? Make a long story short, uh, she pretty much won her way, you know. She, she got me to move to America about a year or two later, and uh, which turned out phenomenal, really. It's a great place to live. It's a wonderful country. It's, uh, Florida is awesome for golf as well. Good weather year-round. And uh, we moved to Boca Raton where she had family, and made home there and I played both tours for many years. I was fortunate enough to play eight tournaments in 84, make my enough money to get my tour card in 85. I won the Masters and then I had a 10-year exemption and won it again and got another 10-year exemption. And uh, basically I've been exempt ever since. So while we're talking about the Masters 1985, uh, you know when you win the tournament you get to go straight to Butler Cabin, where the green checker presentation is for television, right? And then you go back out to 18th Green to do it for the public. Well, I was taken in to Butler Cabin, and uh, I think it was Jim Nance who goes, well, Bernhard, were you watching the leaderboard at all today? I said, you know, Jim, um, I, was, I learned not to watch the leaderboard because when I look too much at leaderboards and I see my name at the top, I get defensive and I play more cautious and then I'm not winning anymore. And when I look at the leaderboard and I don't see my name at all, but I can know, I know that I'm 15 shots behind the leader, I get kind of down on myself and that doesn't help either. So it's best for me not to look at leaderboards and just play the best golf I can, hit every shot as good as I can. But I said on one occasion when I came off the ninth screen, I had a quick glance to the right and there was this huge leaderboard and I was trying not to look at leaderboards but it was just right there. And I said, um, this is live television, hundreds of millions all over the world watching this and say, Jesus Christ, I couldn't believe I'm four shots behind Curtis Strange. <laughs> I was two shots going into the Sunday round and I thought I caught up a little bit because I played pretty good on the front side. And, and now I'm four shots behind, so that was my expression. And obviously I wasn't a believer at the time, uh, even though I thought I was. And I just, you know, went on, but I played the back nine very well. I shot uh, five under the next seven holes. Curtis had some issues and Savvy and Raymond Floyd had, didn't play good enough either, so I won the tournament. So that's the first time I used Jesus Christ 
on, on national, international television, I should say. So, as I went to bed that night, there's actually another funny story. Uh, I obviously have dinner with the members that evening at Augusta. There were people from um, Australia. The Australian Masters happens in Melbourne every year. It happened in March that year, so months before I played the US Masters, two guys were running this tournament, the Australian Masters. And they treat themselves after working for about 10, 11 months. So after the tournament is over, they go and come to the US Masters. Every year they had tickets. And they come there and they, they like to gamble, uh, put money on, on people. And, and they look at the odds and they go, look at Langer. He's got great odds. He just won our tournament. He just finished second at the Players' Championship at Sawgrass. We should put some money on Langer. Again, make a long story short, I won $90,000 to win the Masters. They won $125,000 on, <laughs> on their bet for <coughs> the Calcutta. But let's go back to me mentioning Jesus Christ on TV. Uh, I go to sleep that night after partying with the Aussie guys late into the morning and uh, I couldn't sleep. I, I felt an emptiness in, in my heart or in my body. I don't know how to explain it. I never had it really before. <clears throat> and I had no idea and I'm thinking, gosh, you just won your first major. You got a beautiful young wife. You're first in the, in the world. I was ranked number one in the world shortly after that. Um, you, you're on the money list here and there. You got houses, cars, money, everything a 26 or 27 year old could ever dream of and more. Well, what is this emptiness about? And I had no idea. So I arranged for a practice round with Bobby Clampett in Hilton Head, which was the next tournament after the Masters. So we drove there, my wife and I, played a practice round on Tuesday, and after the round, Bobby goes, who was a very good friend of mine, we actually looked alike, and they, people confused us. They would ask Bobby, hey, Bernhard, sign my autograph, please, or you're, and, and they would, people come to me and say, Bobby, would you sign, or would you give me a ball, or stuff, and I say, I'm not Bobby, I'm Bernhard, you know, so, anyways, we were almost twins. So he says, Bernard, why don't you join us for the Bible study tomorrow night? And I kind of played dumb and said, well, Bible study, what, what kind of, what do you guys do? Well, it's, we have a chaplain and he, we spend an hour with him. It's players, caddies, coaches, anybody really, friends. And we have a chaplain who goes through a topic of the Bible or just explains the word of God 2,000 years later after Jesus died, basically, and, and how it pertains to us nowadays. And I go, well, that kind of sounds interesting, but I was non-committal. I said, Bobby, I'll, I'll talk to my wife about it. We'll, we'll see. Maybe we'll come, maybe not. And, and we left it at that. So I shared this with Vicky, my wife, and she grew up in a similar circumstances in America. Uh, as I did in, in Germany, and we decided to go to the Bible study, our first Bible study ever, and we're 27 years old. And one story I didn't tell you, when I was kind of swearing on just two days earlier, or three, right, on Sunday, on, in Butler Cabin, when I said, Jesus Christ, I couldn't believe, uh, there was the chaplain, Larry Moody is his name, and Scott Simpson, who won the US Open, uh, who became a believer. They were watching me 
in Butler Cabin hearing me and they said, let's pray for this guy and hope that one day he becomes a believer in Christ and instead of using his name in vain on television. So I walked through that door Wednesday night to go to Bible study and there's Larry Moody and Scott Simpson. And they must have thought, wow, that was a quick answer prayer. <laughs> uh, not, not that he's a believer yet, but he's walking through the door, you know, that kind of thing. So as coincidence, I don't believe in coincidences anymore. <clears throat> I think they're all God-ordained. And the uh, message that evening was being born again. And... It's out of John, out of the book, Gospel of John, John 3.3, Nicodemus visits Jesus. Nicodemus was a Jewish religious rabbi, a religious leader, really. He should have known all this stuff, studying scriptures. He came to Jesus at night, probably didn't want to be seen during the day, and uh, realized that there was more to Jesus than just a good teacher or a rabbi. And he asked him a few questions. And in John 3.3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, which is heaven. And two verses later in John 3, 5, Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born of <coughs> water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God, or to be born again. And uh, Nicodemus was confused, as I would have been confused, I guess, and, and he says to Jesus, like, how can I enter my mother's womb again? I can't be born again. And he's right, we're only born once in the flesh, but we can be born a second time in the spirit. And some of us are, sp are born a second time in the spirit and some of us are not. Only those who believe in God and Jesus Christ will be born again in, in the spirit world. And this is what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus. And this is exactly what I needed to hear at that point in my life, because I've been going to church, I told you how many hundreds of times, heard so many sermons, was told to be a good person. By the way, did you know the Bible says no one is good, not even one? No one. Out of all the hundreds of millions of people who live, not one is good enough to get to heaven by themselves. So here's the truth. If you think you're going to be good enough to make it to heaven, forget it you're not going to make it. At least the Bible says so. And uh, so I'm hearing this. I'm, when, the, when the Bible study is over, he obviously explained what it means to be born again, that at some point in our lives we have to understand that God created us in his image. He put us in charge. But we were all born with a sin nature. When Adam and Eve took the fruit from the forbidden tree, they could do everything in the Garden of Eden but take that fruit from that one tree, and that's obviously what they did. Uh, just like a child, if you tell them don't do that, they'll do it. Uh, anyways, we were all born with a sin nature. So we have a, a fleshly sin nature, and God realized that, so he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins, and he was the only perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect lamb. The Jewish people would offer animal sacrifices once a year, I believe, uh, to cover up their sins. Never took care of their sins, but it covered up their sins. Well, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because he had never sinned before. He was uh, born by the, by the Virgin Mary, received 
or conceived by the Holy Spirit. And when he died on the cross, he died for all of us, for each and every one of our sins, past, present, and future. Uh, and whoever believes in him can have eternal life. Um, I'm not sure what scripture it is. I think it's in Romans. It says, if you uh, believe it in your heart, confess it with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. It doesn't say you could be saved. You might be saved. No, it says you will be saved. Now, if God says you will be saved, God can't lie. God is truth and love. He, he doesn't lie. So there's the confirmation there. And uh, we all have this sin nature problem, as I already explained, and we can't take care of it ourselves. It's only through Jesus Christ. There's another scripture, where the, a scripture that says, Jesus says to himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets the Father but through me. Nobody but through him. So some of you might say, well, that's very narrow. Yes, it may be. That's the only way, through Jesus Christ. But if you're on an airplane and you want to land somewhere, you want to land on this narrow landing strip, not somewhere in the trees or in the bushes, uh, you could say that's pretty narrow too. Maybe a bad, uh, a bad uh, whatever uh, point of view, but that's how it is. And I'm only uh, quoting scriptures here. This is not what I made up. This is what the Bible says. So when I heard this, um, and the Bible study was over, I went to Larry Moody, the chaplain. I said, uh, what kind of Bible are you using? Because I thought he had some kind of, because I never heard he had to be born again all my life. So he flips it over and goes, NIV, New International Version. Nothing unusual, you can buy one yourself if you want. And he goes, by the way, doesn't matter what Bible you buy, they're all very similar. They all have the same thread, pretty much say the same thing. And I encourage you to get your own. Uh, and if you have any questions, he goes, I'll be happy to answer them. Here's my phone number. Call me anytime, come to the Bible study if you have questions. So Vicky and I bought our own Bibles, went back to the fellowship, every time I played a tournament, we went Wednesday night to the Bible studies and, and we grew in the knowledge of the word, of, of the gospel, of the good news. And it was about three months later when it became very obvious to me and to my wife that this was missing in our lives. We weren't really believers. We were religious. We were going through the motions. We were doing the things you're supposed to do, uh, but that by itself doesn't make you a believer and that by itself doesn't give you eternal life because we had no relationship <clears throat> with Jesus, no personal relationship with God. We were just trusting he's out there somewhere and hopefully he'll take care of us when we die, that kind of thing. So at this point in time, uh, we went on our knees, we prayed the acceptance prayer, um, accepted God in our, into our lives, asking for forgiveness of sins and praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us. And as soon as I finished um, that prayer, the split second I finished, this emptiness that I had went away. And this was 1985 and I haven't had it since. So clearly that was missing in my life. 
And I know in a room full of people like this, there's got to be some of you, if not many of you, that are either religious or you're sitting on the fence or you're thinking, well, I'm still young. I got plenty of time to deal with that. Let me focus on my career, my family. And, you know, I have a few more years left to, to deal with uh, the issue of God. Well, there's no guarantees, you know. I might walk out of this room and be in a car accident or have a heart attack or whatever it may be and my time is up. So are we ready? Are we prepared to meet our Lord and Savior? If you cannot be certain right now, if you can't tell me 100% that you're going to heaven when you die, you should seriously consider uh, praying the prayer. I'm going to pray with you in a minute. Uh, make my prayer your prayer and accept God into your life. So this this is far more important than anything you'll ever do. It's more important than who you marry, where you live, what job you're going to get. This is about eternal life. Millions of years. The time we spend on this earth is like this long compared to eternity. So this is not about joining a church. It's not about joining a club or a membership or becoming a part of a cult or whatever. No, it is about who do I believe in, whose am I, uh, and who do I trust? And where do I spend eternity? Do you spend eternity in heaven or do I spend eternity in hell or away from, from heaven in, in some kind of dark place, whatever it may be? Uh, so I'm going to say a prayer here in a minute and I, I'd like to encourage all of you that have never said that prayer to make my words your words. And if you feel any... You know, if you feel a bit uncomfortable right now, and if somebody's tugging at your heart, it's the Holy Spirit. It, it's your time. It's time for you to commit your life to God. Uh, he will change you for the better, and you have a guarantee of spending eternity in heaven, no matter how many times you might sin. This doesn't mean you're going to go keep sinning on purpose, uh, but I still sin, and not, not hopefully on purpose, just by accident or just by my nature. But I am promised to have forgiveness for my sins because of what Jesus did on, on the cross. So why don't we uh, bow our heads and pray together. And if you feel led to make this prayer your prayer, please follow it, follow my words in, in your own heart. Heavenly Father, I come before you. I realize that I am a sinner and I need your help. And I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. And I ask you to forgive my sins. Lord, I, I pray that you would make me everything to be that you want me to be, that you want me to desire for me to be. So I give you my life now. I ask you to be my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the good news is, for those of you who prayed this prayer, I will see you again in heaven. I'll give free golf lessons in heaven. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. 
For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.